The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is the show Socially Distanced. Uh, I'm Paxton Wright. With me, as always, is my co host, Justin Kiever. How are you doing today, Justin? Uh, I'm doing all right today. I'm f- feeling okay, which is nice. I like that. You know, okay is, uh, you know, this, these days, sometimes the best you can ask for. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on board with okay. It's pretty much my ceiling at this point. (laughs) I think it's most everyone's ceiling. Um, so, uh, uh, I think just before we get started, we should just say very quickly, um, obviously if you're listening to this, this week being, uh, April the 15th or, Anytime pretty shortly thereafter, if you pay attention to the news at all, you know this has not been a fun week. It has uh, a story that we hear time and time and time and time and time again that we have discussed on this show before uh, has once again repeated itself. And uh, obviously, it's it's not a fun subject. And we're about to discuss Fast and Furious 9. So I don't think this is really the time or place to discuss it. Um but we do just want to acknowledge up top that, uh, you know, we're not going to gloss. We don't necessarily want to gloss over the elephant in the room, but um, you know, as always, I don't know that this is the forum to get into the specifics on it. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think that's well put. We've tried, we've done our best to address these kinds of issues before. And I think right now the most weirdly enough, the most responsible thing I think we can do with this platform is just kind of like try and curate a, more or less good vibes zone or at least like try and stay on topic with with uh pop culture but uh yes just just putting that out there so people don't think we are just ignoring the subject altogether um i do think we should open with actually kind of a sad story but an important story that i think does fall under the blanket of uh uh this this show um, the entertainment world did lose a, uh, a bright star in a very tragic way. Um, and, uh, by saying bright star, I don't, you know, I, I have a tendency to use flowery language for uh, humorous effect, but I don't mean it this time. Um, we really lost someone great in, uh, DMX this last weekend, rapper, uh, DMX, um, who, uh, you know, whether his music is to your taste or not, uh, he certainly had a very specific brand. Um, I kind of think it can't really be argued that uh, his brand was very unique to him. His his artistry and his innovation can't really be uh, can't really be diminished. Yeah, I mean, my experience of DMX was, I think, pretty pretty superficial. You know, like I listened to the big songs, but like nonetheless, like he had an incredibly distinctive, like just like vocal delivery that I have basically loved my entire life, even though I never like really dug deep into his kind of a, his oeuvre, but like, yeah, I don't know. Like it's sort of, it's a sound that I associate with like some kind of like formative middle school years and, uh, and DMX, you know, like was a, a very complicated human being, um, I think. And, but in a way that like, as people kind of like, you know, said after his death, like it was reflected in his music 
And it's sort of like, yeah, like there's this duality to him of this kind of like, you know, this harsh upbringing, but also a sort of like, you know, a real like emotional earnestness. So um, as I think, so like you see this combination in his music uh, as of people have written this, like the sort of like, you know, like tough kind of performance of masculinity with like this sort of, you know, like uh, earnest emotionality. And people are passing around these like really charming clips of DMX, like in the immediate, like, you know, immediately after the news broke. And it was just like, it was it really did break my heart watching yeah. uh, all these things. I think that was that was the part that got me the most too. Because um, I I did I grew up listening to DMX basically by way of my older brother who um, has a number of years on me. Um, so he was like in high school when I was a little kid, and so that was like in the early to mid aughts when sort of DMX was kind of most uh, most prevalent. Uh, and so like, and I, I, so I do have a lot of fond memories of like my brother driving me around my hometown one place or another and listening to get at me dog and stuff like that. <laughs> and like being this, uh, being this, uh, you know, little white third grader in the passenger seat of our parents' Jeep. Um, you know, it's, so it, it certainly wasn't the, um, the atmosphere that, uh, he'd intended to invoke with his music, but it, it, it created very specific atmospheric memories to me nonetheless. Um, and yeah, and I think that was, that was one of the hardest parts for me too, was not just those memories, also not just the very tragic circumstances of his death of being an overdose, um, yeah. which is always heartbreaking to hear about. Um, but yeah, seeing these stories, seeing these videos of him being a really loving family man, which is an aura he didn't really project in his music. As you said, his music was very sort of hyper machismo, hyper, uh, uh, you know, it was like posturing, but there was also kind of a sense of humility to a lot of it, which was like an awareness that it was posturing, which I think made his perspective really interesting. Um, and yeah, seeing clips of him being like a really a, a man who loved his daughter and a and a man who um, was a, apparently very kind to strangers too, and like just had yeah. a big heart. Like it painted him in a new light that I had never really known before. Um, and so, like, yeah, and I'm not going to claim to be like the ultimate DMX diehard. I couldn't tell you 60% of his di like discography. I, I, the same boat as you. Um, mostly, mostly the hits are the ones that have really stuck with me. But uh, uh, yeah, nevertheless, um, it's a tragic circumstance to lose. I, I, I'm of I'm of two minds of like you know quote unquote celebrating death when you know you lose someone who's been a pretty objectively awful person. I'm not necessarily one of those people who's like oh I think you should remember the good they did too. Mm -hmm. uh, when Rush Limbaugh died, I didn't really have any moment of contemplation about well he was a media titan. I didn't do that, but there was a slight reluctance to be like he's dead for about half an hour. And then I was like, he's dead. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but uh, uh, you know, DMX was a circumstance where it's like, no, that's just a, a good person who brought a pretty unique perspective and a unique sound to the artistic landscape who we lost under unfortunate circumstances um, and untimely circumstances. And that, that that hurts to see especially when it is someone that you have so many memories attached to as well yeah and like i guess it's like one maybe final note before we move on i when the news broke i uh like that morning i had a uh, discussion sections over zoom and like as you said like i really associate dmx like dmx is like the sound of a very like particular time for me and so i was like kind of um I was happy when I found out because like the, the people that I'm like talking with in these discussion sections are normally, you know, like around 19 to 21 and I'm not that much older than that, but you know, it, it's like enough of a gap where like pop culture stuff sometimes doesn't quite um, like the perspectives are very different. And I, I was very happy to find that like my students, like, you know, had had a really like we're also really bummed out that dmx had died and so like his influence definitely seems to like you know persisted beyond like the period with wit that i associate him with or like you know he's able to touch people who are just like just you know there, there's a there's a long durée like there's yeah. a reason that we're you know talking about dmx right now 
And I think that's another thing. It's a big testament to like the effect that like um, media can have on a whole of um, exposure uh, to, to new generations. I think a big part of DMX sort of being still attached to younger generations too, because I, like you, I'm also, I mean, I graduated last year, but I am, I, you know, I spent a few years in community college a little longer than most. So I'm also a lot older than my peers who I graduated with. Um, and so I have that, I have a similar sort of detachment as you, but I think another big thing for DMX's exposure was, uh, whether you want to goof on the show or not, Rick and Morty, um, with that very, very famous montage scene oh, yeah. set to mm-hmm. X gonna give it to you. Yep. And I remember, and, and I, it was after that episode that I started hearing that song so much more everywhere. Like, cause I wasn't even, I don't think necessarily, I might be wrong, but I feel like back in the day that wasn't even necessarily his biggest hit. I remember hearing where the hood at a lot more, like growing yeah, up yeah no where the hood at was like the big one yeah and then now it's now it's x going to give it to you like and i i don't think that's entirely rick and morty but i think that planted the seed for a lot of people it's you started hearing it a lot more uh, i think deadpool one of the deadpool movies used it and it started being a lot more popularized in media and i'm sure it had its i'm sure it's it's had its run around on tiktok as well which has also been a huge uh really cool avenue for exposure to very niche music to younger generations um and so i think that too is a it's it's a testament not just to dmx's music but it's a testament to the fact that like it can have a i don't even want to say a longer shelf life but it can it can have a sort of rebirth and a um a greater staying power when elevated by more contemporary media as well and that's always something that i i like to see i like to see that he has remained relevant and probably in some part by other forms of popular media yeah for sure um as a quick aside, so where the hood at was my probably my favorite DMX song, but party up I think was like the big one. Yeah, that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, that was yeah. But anyway, um, anyway, you know, funny you should mention Rick and Morty because uh, today, like, I guess this is the transition out of DMX. So my apologies to DMX for this being the transition. <laughs> but uh, today, Rainbow Six Siege announced that there is going to be a Pickle Rick uh, skin. Anyway, in other news, I've just uninstalled Rainbow Six Siege. <laughs> and that's all I have to say about that. Uh, anyway, I mean, um, <laughs> as someone that hasn't played Rainbow Six, um, I, I, it's one of the, that's one of those things where, and this is a conversation that's been had to death, and I don't really think we're saying anything new by talking about it. But Rick and Morty is such a like complicated show in that I do actually believe that there has been a dip in quality over the years in the show not a tremendous one i still think it's a pretty solid show but is an example of something that has been so tarnished by toxic fans um who completely misunderstand the thesis of the show uh, entirely the show is calling out that toxicity that they um that they celebrate and don't realize that the show is not intended to be a celebration um and pickle rick I, is is emblematic of like I pickle Rick became like the meme of the toxic fan and so it's one of those things where it's like you know sure funny episode I guess uh, you know I don't it, even think it's that I good. don't think it was it was actually not one of my favorites like it was I, just kind of a happy tree friends episode and then it ends with like some dumb thing about like uh you know some like therapy scene yeah, therapy like, it's not a good episode no it's a pretty bad yeah it is a pretty bad one yeah I, I I will actually take back what I said but um it's it's uh uh I I don't know I feel like if you're going to if you're going to use, uh, you know, brand is brand synergy, what you'd call it. Um, Why not? That sounds appropriately if hellish. You're, if you're, <laughs> if you're gonna, if you're gonna like do cross promotion of a brand, maybe don't use the symbol that I think is forever attached to the harassment of McDonald's employees. Um <laughs> I I oh, I would I go with something that. else. I would go with I don't know, Mr. Meeseeks or something. Something more harmless. I I, I that's a it's a questionable decision, but um I don't know that I have much more to say on it other than like no, I I got, I got nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um 
as anyway, as we said at the top of the show, uh, we also uh, had the very thrilling drop today of the trailer for Fast and Furious 9. And as I think we all saw coming like six movies ago, we got flying cars now, baby. They're here. Uh, we have nowhere to go but up. Uh, we have had submarine cars, which they say in the movie, the, the, in the trailer, the trailer jokes about like, man, we've had submarines. We've had, uh, we've had um, iron cars that can carry safes. And now we're going into the sky. Like, <laughs> Somehow like driving, uh, uh, driving cars between skyscrapers didn't make the cut of that, uh, <laughs> that, of that discussion. There's too many to count. Oh man. Um, yeah, it looks dumb. It looks great. I don't know. Like I, um, I'm, Helen Mirren. yeah, Helen Mirren driving a car, pulling a sweet drift, and making a bunch of cops crash their cars. There's nothing more exciting to me than that. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, I'm like I, I love those dumb movies. Like I, ex- with the exception of the uh, the Hobbs and Shaw spinoff, which I actually thought was not that good. I did not see it. It, um, it's not that good. That's kind of all I got. Like it, um, it was weird because the whole like really corny sort of like, you know, overarching theme, quote unquote, in the Fast and Furious movies always ends up being family and like really in sort of found family, like it ends up being like collections of friends that are also united by romantic bonds rather than, and then anyway, but whatever. But like, then like Hobbs and Shaw comes along and it's like, you know, about the rocks characters, uh, family. And it ends up being like the least kind of like, it's, it's like the least earnest of any of them, which is like this weird kind of like ironic twist of fate for the film. That's like, you know, most about like, you know, capital F family. Um, yeah, it's not that great. Anyway, Fast and Furious 9, it looks good. It looks dumb. Um, like there's a bit with magnets that was like, (laughs) I mean, part of even as these things like get more and more cg heavy like a thing that i've always appreciated about like the stunts in the fast and furious movies or at least like the the action set pieces is that they're they tend to be united around like a concept so like there is in fast and furious 6 which i think is my favorite just as a side note it may be tokyo drift but um which i have like a weird fondness for but anyway in fast and furious 6 there is you know what's his name um uh the the guy from uh the hobbit uh is like driving a car and the car has a ramp on it and then like the whole action scene is basically just what if you know this car drove beneath other cars and made them fly up on that ramp and crash them and like that's the whole you know that is the the sort of like the uniting idea and i mean fast five has its big kind of like you know thing with the uh as you said, the, the safe that is attached to the car. So they're just like swinging it around like a wrecking ball. And that ends up kind of like structuring like the entire, like the sort of like the set of possibilities for the entire thing. And yeah, here we get like that breaking bad thing where it's like, Hey, what if, what if we put a big magnet in something and like, you know, basically warped gravity. Like that seems (laughs) to be like the, 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 the thing I'm like, okay. Yeah. Like this is, this looks cool. I don't know. Like that looks fun. That's the kind of like the absurdity, but kind of like absurdity based around like a coherent concept that I think is like always really interesting in the fast and furious action set pieces, at least what makes them fun. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things about my relationship to the fast and furious movies are I've seen like a third of them. I've seen the mm-hmm. first. I've seen Too Fast, Too Furious, uh, which was, mm. you know, it's not, it's, I know it's one of the more skippable ones, but it is I, the second worst, in my opinion. Next to, next to uh, the fourth one, which okay. I think is like where, which I think is a technically competent film, but the least, the least fun of all of them, like the least kind of like warm. Of, uh, of any of them yeah i haven't i haven't seen four i i've seen i've seen one too fast too furious uh parts of five and uh is it seven seven is the one with uncanny valley paul walker right yeah yes yeah. yes yeah and i've seen seven um and i think one of the things i love about those movies is the fact that i've only seen half of them and there is this crazy overarching plot with a million tendrils and new characters constantly being introduced in every film and with every one that i do see i'm like wait who's that 
wait, what happened? Eh, I don't care. Like, there is, <laughs> there is such a, uh, there's such a, uh, uh, like, I guess a, a dissonance between like me and my relation to the franchise, but always being thoroughly entertained by it. And, uh, and I think one of the things that works is that, the first movie, it's always been kind of a silly blockbuster franchise, but the first movie is definitely the most self-serious. Like yeah. it is a, it's about a, a street gang that, uh, you know, like a ragtag street gang that, you know, is, you know, celebrates car culture and that's, a, and then like sort of, yeah, drops those seeds of family and it's a bit of a half-baked movie and created that sort of for a long time, that uh, understanding of Fast and Furious as like those dumb bro movies that are bad. And like, and, and as it's gone on and leaned harder and harder into the absurdity that uh, that like quote unquote ironic fan base has built and grown. And then they've had the opportunity to lean into that fan base and like, and cast a wider net of an audience and now everyone loves it the the quote-unquote dumb bros and the quote-unquote you know uh contrarian ironic viewers and everyone in between loves those movies and it's been by this this not just embracing of like its stupidity but also as you kind of said deliver being delivered in such earnestness and always still ending with this big thesis statement in vin diesel's voice talking about family like and and it's like and it and it feels it feels tongue-in-cheek yet sincere at the same time it's don't uh, quite put it into words it's very i think that's the thing is like it's very sincere i remember reading at some point because you you're right to kind of call out like the 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 shift in what these movies like are like what they become later on you know or as they progress um someone once kind of said that like yeah like uh fast and furious uh i cannot remember this article because it was years ago but like fast and furious like starts as a b movie franchise and then becomes like you know a full blockbuster but like retains its b movie heart as it keeps going and i think that that's really kind of like one of the big secrets to like why why these films work as well as they do is that like there is you know in I think Too Fast, Too Furious ends up being like in terms of like the the initial reception of these things as these like dumb bro movies, like Too Fast, Too Furious to me is sort of like the the exe- the exemplar of that like identity for the series. And it's, it's like the, the one it's I like remember the, the least about. And I only saw it maybe three years ago, and I couldn't tell you hardly anything that happens in it. And I think it's the one that doesn't have Vin Diesel in it as well. Like, yeah, it, you're right. Yeah, because it's just Paul Walker and um oh oh uh, anyway whatever um Tyre- but yeah no Tyrese didn't come until later no 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 right? I think I think it is, is it actually I think so um yeah and then like too fast too furious yeah it, it's the it's not good like there there's still like a certain kind of like the, the broiness I think retroactively gets kind of charming in these movies like when you sort of see like the thesis of family kind of like unfurl so to speak <laughs> in like the uh, in the in the back like half of these movies but yeah no I mean they're they're good I've seen all of them I do not adore all of them but they're 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 good blockbusters they are very kind of they're very self-consciously spectacle there's a sense of fun to it too the main cast yeah. the main cast doesn't seem to be doing it for the paycheck they don't seem to be doing it because it's easy money where they can phone in their performance like you see with so much of uh you know marvel and and you know a lot of big blockbusters where it just seems like oh they come in they say joss whedon's zinger dialogue that means that they have to do very little work or i guess they used to say joss whedon's zinger dialogue but neither here nor there but like they still come in tell some zingers you know whatever they go home and make tens of millions of dollars yeah Um, this one a bunch of bunch of cg artists like spend a a lot of time making the actual movie exactly exactly and and while yeah a bunch of cg artists still slave over the fast and furious movies and those actors still go home (laughs) making tens of millions of dollars they do seem to be enjoying their time on set and they have great chemistry together um you have that line uh in one of them i can't i think it's i think it's eight i believe it's one of the ones i haven't seen mm-hmm. but there is a there's a line where uh i think it's ludicrous 
kind of like throws a jab at the rock and then the rock throws one right back and it's like saying that Ludacris has a big head like literally and then Ludacris like breaks down laughing and it was apparently all improvised and like Ludacris laughing was actually Ludacris laughing um, I, th- I think that's five or six. Yeah, I, I believe it's one of the ones I haven't seen. Because it would be like, because that was a scene, because I can't remember which one it is, but it was a scene at the at Dom's house, which gets blown up in seven, I think. <laughs> the, well, I will say, the my, my trajectory in watching those movies was, I saw the first one as a little kid, like a few years after it came out. Didn't mm-hmm. care for it because I, there was no dinosaurs and, you know, I didn't have any sort of real attachment to car culture as a kid and I didn't really see any tongue-in-cheek appeal of it as at the time. And then I went like a decade and a half without watching it. And then in like 2015 or 16 on New Year's Eve, I got with some friends and we watched Seven. It was shortly after Seven came out um, and we watched Seven and and i remember being like oh, we're gonna watch a fast and the furious aren't these like just a, a dumb train rant okay i'm watching it and i was like i was like okay okay no i'm getting this i, I you know I'm, I'm i'm enjoying this okay and then kurt russell pulls out his like um goes goes hey uh dumb can i offer you uh plank drop drops a metal bucket full of coronas into the into the foreground (laughs) can i offer you an ice cold corona and and then i was like okay no i think i'm into this and then later on the rock out of sheer motivation to help his friends who are in trouble um who is has been in a hospital bed in a full body cast the entire movie flexes his muscles so hard that he breaks his body cast rips the wires and whatnot off of him and charges out of the hospital to go save his friends and at Mm -hmm. that point i was like okay no these are (laughs) these are great these are great and and then i did a little catching up from then on i rewatched one again and i got it i got the appeal and then i rewatched too fast too furious and i was like this is terrible and i stopped again Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then i caught bits and pieces of five over the years on tv prior to seven actually i i five was the one i saw before seven um and now i need to i need to really go back the tokyo drift onward and really give it all a fair shake again because i get it now i just need to put in the effort so so this is the you mentioned the kind of like the absurd lore and all of that and like one of the things in in the trailer for nine which is in the the first trailer for nine like a full year and change ago is that they they resurrected han who has been dead since tokyo drift um (laughs) that's that's who that is (laughs) yeah um he's also in five and six and that's sort of like that's the the funny thing is you know as people have mentioned when like seven or whatever came out so tokyo drift is a film that came out in like 2000 like the mid-aughts and so you can see like all of these like mid-aughts things about it i think it actually is supposed to take place within like the it takes place after six which means that it it like canonically like (laughs) takes place in like 2019 or something like that which is when you watch it now doesn't quite work which is why it's great which is why the series is great which i mean that's sort of like as, as a final note like I think one thing that like people, or at least I really appreciate about the final, about the Fast and Furious uh, series is that like it's this absurdly long running blockbuster series where each where there is kind of like an overarching dumb lore. So it like you know superficially kind of looks like the Marvel movies or something like that. It looks like this expanded universe thing or something. But then you like when you watch each of them, like the the world building is so secondary that like each film kind of ends up working on its own. And like, it doesn't feel like an advertisement for the next one. And like the existence of the next one is just, it ends up being more of like a pleasant, like, hey, this is still going. And they're uh, rather than a kind of like the promise of the previous film. And I think that's a very different viewing experience. And I think it's like more, you know, we talked uh, many episodes ago about, about like missing an older kind of blockbuster. And I think that uh, Fast and Furious, weirdly enough, even though it's been this like long running series is that older kind of blockbuster. It feels like the last holdout and the fact that it's going 20 years strong and it's fan base somehow only seems to grow is a testament to that. Yeah, yeah, no, there, it's very weird to have this really sincere analytical conversation 
on of all things the fast and the furious franchise but uh, you know that's what we do here exactly that's that's the kind of uh, cutting edge conversation we love to have here at socially distance and we appreciate you here uh uh tuning in and enjoying it hopefully uh when we come back I should have mentioned this at the top of the show, and I'm just now realizing I didn't. But you know, spilled milk and all that. Uh, we have a, we have a guest, an exciting guest, uh, former employee of Savage Entertainment uh, game company and uh, uh, developers, uh, as well as EA. Um, Peter Keating, UX UI designer, uh, lifelong artist, really talented, really creative guy, uh, a family friend. Won't lie. Uh, that's, that's how that's how that's how we bag them folks but uh uh yeah very excited to chat with him about uh art in the game industry so stay tuned for that for the first time since like last october you're gonna hear a third voice on this show that isn't ours so if that doesn't sell you i don't know what does stick with us Listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, this is socially distanced. If you're just tuning in, welcome. If you've been listening for the last half hour, appreciate you staying with us. I'm usually not this uh, not this polite with our listeners. This is a, a nice change of pace for me. Um, but you know why I'm so because polite? there's company. It's because there's company. Yes, I'm so jovial to have uh, a third person with us today. So uh, this is Peter Keating. Uh, say hello, Peter. Hello, Peter. There it is. <laughs> there it is. We, everybody uh, gets one on this show. That's uh, that's what we always say. Oh, we did that more than once. Yeah, it's true. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I. <clears throat> You don't, you don't need and to, I'm prepared me. to say it more than once. You know, <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's just drop it a few times, a few times throughout the interview. When there's a, when there's a lull, when we got some dead air, just give us a hello, Peter. We're all, okay. uh, we're all looking for it. Um, mm. so we're, we're counting on you here. Um, so Peter, you are, I guess I should first just mention you're a, uh, you're a family friend. Uh, you mm-hmm. grew up with my father, or I guess you didn't grow up. You went to college with my father. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, um, we didn't actually complete the growing up part. No, well, <laughs> no. It's, I mean, believe me, I can vouch. But uh, you're, you know, you've you've, you've done your best together. Uh, right now, you work uh, in UX and UI uh, at a at an app at an app company uh, called Simple. Uh, Simple is the app, and that's actually now um, history. That that uh that ran its course and so i am back to doing freelance oh nice well we'll we'll talk a bit about that um and uh, you know this is a show where you're you're familiar at this point we talk about dork stuff we talk about video games mm. and uh and what have you and um mm. you've certainly got uh uh no lack of experience in that realm uh you have previously worked with uh savage entertainment a uh, a former video game company uh, you worked there for many years, I know. In fact, I actually remember I have a keen memory as a child of visiting you at the studio uh, one time, which was a, a dream come true for me as a, as a, as a, a little up and coming dork. Uh, mm-hmm. You've also worked, uh, you've also worked with Victory Games, which I believe is a, it's a division of EA, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Um, and, was a division of the well, <laughs> fair we can point. get into that <laughs> we will we'll, uh, we'll get there soon enough but um peter yeah i guess uh, just before we you know really get into the nitty-gritty of it um i mean i know you have a 
you have a long history. You've, you've been an artist your entire life. You met my father at art school. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about your background. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, a, a broad question, but, you know, tell us a bit about your background, sort of when you started, what your sort of bread and butter, your, your niche of art was, and uh, I guess how that developed through and after school. Well, I would say that I, um, I honed my skill set by um, sitting year after year, beginning in elementary school at the back of the classroom um, and doodling and not paying attention and barely passing um, uh, from year to year. And so by the time I got to college, I had really cultivated some remarkably bad study habits. And I was what you would describe as an indifferent student. And I kind of lollygagged my way through college, um, eventually at my own expense, because the, you know, the sacrifices that I was completely ignorant of as a young man that my parents made to get me into school and, and into a few good ones. Um, you know, I was, it was just, uh, you know, I guess that's what youth is for. You're just totally unappreciative of the things that um, that other people do for you often and that was that was my case so uh, by the time I got to college I I, I ended up really just sort of uh, dog paddling through college um, this was the University of Utah where I met your dad um, and um, I guess we we bumped noggins in the big pool there so to speak and um, and really, I didn't, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. Uh, you know, I, I needed to pick a major, and uh, you know, that's I think that's a certainly a dilemma for a lot of um, a freshly admitted students. And really, the only thing that made sense to me was art, because I, thought, you know, I thought, well, I, I think I kind of know how to do that. I've been doing it <laughs> in the back of classrooms all my <laughs> life. Um, so I, I did flirt with the idea of architecture, but convinced myself it involved too much mathematics, which didn't turn out to be true. And I kind of regret that. Um, but um, I got to do some some later in life. Um, uh, but so that's where that's where the 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 art started. Really, it was it was almost like um, it was sort of a process of elimination. Well, I can't do this. I don't want to do that. I can't do this. So there's art. I mean, I and think that leaves. That... Oh, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I think, I think that's about 95% of student bodies at, at all, at all colleges. There's, we, I, I, you know, we all want to be the prodigy and uh, I think, I think it's, uh, I think it's rare that any of us do. So the fact that you, I mean, I think, I think you give, uh, give yourself too little credit. The fact that you had a niche, you had an ability and you managed to hone it into a specific, um, to a specific arena is better than a lot of people can say. So, Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I became a, a graphic design major, um, and back then, um, you know, this was shortly after the conclusion of the Civil War. Um, <laughs> we didn't even have computers in the classroom. You know, there, there were no computers. Everything was done manually, as we say. <laughs> so um, that was my that was my formal education, and then I started, um, and uh, you know, had a was fortunate to meet your dad and uh, um, cultivate a, a friendship that we maintain to this day. Um, and, but, you know, we were both very interested in design in, in its broader aspects. And um, Michael sort of professionally transitioned more into the architectural side. And years later, I was able to, um, to work with him doing some of that. Um, but uh, right out of college, I, I, I ended up freelancing and, and thought, okay, I, I got to get out of Salt Lake City. It's either New York or Los Angeles. And I picked LA because I knew more people there. And because and, you're so vapid. Yeah, yeah there's nothing going on up, upstairs. So um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, moved to LA and w- one of the people that was there was a guy named Andrew Welch and he had started his own company uh, and w- he was a bit of an inventor and he was the a pioneer of the electronic news set. Um, and so I um, went to work for him and uh, his, he bought something. And by the way, um, feel free to 
to push me along if because I can't imagine anything more boring than people reciting their resumes, but um, <laughs> especially if you know, especially if they're not celebrities, and and that describes me. Um, but everyone, but anyway, everyone loves talking about themselves, Peter. I, I, I'm well aware of that, which is why I, I, I would prefer to steer clear of it. But because uh, <laughs> um, anyway, I uh, I learned uh, my first platform was the Quantel paint box, which is um, now non-existent. But that was the premier graphics platform at the time, and it and uh, it was a um, Wacom tablet, if you're familiar with that at all. Yeah. Um, and you like a like a, draw, like a drawing tablet. You mean if you want yeah. to just elaborate on that real quick? It was like a yeah. You're you're basically drawing. I mean, the things that I used to do manually, I was now doing electronically, and and the process was a lot faster. Although um, chip speed and storage capacity was much smaller in those days. Um, so. But that was a lot of fun. And I finally, I really sort of found my niche um, from there and really enjoyed it and uh, started doing, worked, uh, had the, the privilege of being able to travel all over the country and to Europe to install these new electronic news sets, which were completely new. And, and do you know what I mean by electronic news sets? I was actually going to ask. Um, so... Uh, Formerly, when you watched, when you tuned into your, your local news, you were seeing real people sitting in a real studio behind real desks. The electronic news set, um, if you were, were to walk into an electronic news set, you would see real people sitting at a real desk, and behind them was a, was a green screen. Okay. And so what we were able to do was to create really a, 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 a completely novel electronic environment um, and expand the capabilities of, of the visual capabilities oh, so that it was much more interesting. And then huh. we would have, at least initially, we would have to, we would have to rehearse um, the, the crews because you would have, for every, normally in a news show, you'll have several different camera shots. You'll have a close up, you'll have a two shot, you'll have a three shot, a down the line shot, a toss to the weatherman shot or weather woman. And, <laughs> And so, um, all of those had to be coordinated with the uh, with the backgrounds that we made, so that we would you would cut to a different camera shot. Well, it had to then have the appropriate background behind it. Um, but it was it, it was um, it was a lot of fun. So we would we would go to a, some city and we would train the TV uh, crew there. You know, in our in the use of our new set and and. Um, um, and off we go. Okay. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, probably in a way that I won't be able to art properly articulate, I can kind of see how that like already sort of, I can imagine how that like tends toward a career or, you know, uh, taking gigs in the video game industry as well, where you're like working with a, you're working with an electronic environment that needs to be kind of like, uh, you know, are artificially sort of matched to mm -hmm. camera position and things like that in the way, in a way that like is more, yeah, that, that is more kind of like piecing something together rather than like, you know, organically shooting, uh, you know, something in real life. And that's sort of um, maybe not to transition too hard, but this is some, yeah, you're um, talking about this kind of like this integration of like electronic environments and art, you know, we've talked on the show before uh, Paxton is working on a game and is mm -hmm. doing art for that game. And, and I don't know. And I guess it's kind of like the, just what you're describing is, I mean, it's super fascinating to me, but, um, and the, yeah, there's this way that, um, you know, you're describing a kind of like a method of art production that needs to fit into this kind of like this larger sort of, um, I guess, intermedial, if you like, you know, like electronic and camera, kind of this intermedial apparatus. And I mm -hmm. guess like, I don't know, I, and I'm trying to formulate like a proper like follow-up question, but I guess like Paxton, in your work on the game, which you told me is still continuing, um, how do you, are you kind of like, how is that? I guess like, I want to open, ask this question of Paxton, then we can ask you as well, uh, yeah. Peter, like how, um, yeah, how does the, 
how is this kind of like the, the sort of like the artificiality, the piecemealness of like creating art for like this greater thing? Like, how is that affecting your process? Uh, Paxton, you first. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm happy to field this one. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, basically I uh, am working as the, yeah, the creative director, the character designer and the writer. And so I, I, do the fun part i do the drawing i do the storytelling i i tell the other drawers and storytellers who are helping us put this together what to do and kind of how to do it and then we have this sort of uh jambalaya of art for the weirdest analogy ever um of like of different of different sort of uh 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 products that we've put together and then we throw it at my buddy ian who is handling the actual core game design and the uh and the ux and and puts it into a comprehensive product basically um so that's how we handle it i don't i lack that technical wherewithal um and and so we are very fortunate to be working with uh, ian who has been on the show before i should mention he was actually on last summer um to to talk about this project with us um but uh but yes hold on was that like that long ago terrifyingly yes um yeah let's (laughs) you know at at least it meant that 2020 went by fast um (laughs) to, to some extent uh but but yeah uh so so that's sort of how we've handled it but yeah peter you've um sort of basically crossed streams between uh between you know those two worlds so Mm. like how did how did you end up in that what is the process of that like how like how do those two things go hand in hand together because again as someone with very little i don't I, I know how to make computer do thing, but I don't know why or how computer does thing, you know, and, and you have that knowledge along with the artistic knowledge. So how do those things sort of synchronize and come together, particularly in the realm of uh, game, uh, game, game development? Um, there was a question in there, right? Um, <laughs> I think so. Somewhere. Okay. Um, no, I, I, well, I, I, I think you're right. I do feel like I've crossed um, at least several streams in, in the course of my career. Um, uh, I, I'm, I don't think I emerged completely dry on the other side. But, uh, you know, I guess I've, I always, I'm not exactly sure how to answer your question, Paxton, except to say that I've always had an interest in design and form and color. And so, you know, that's, that's the the flame that I was drawn to, and um, it started out doing still graphics, and then I became eventually went into broadcast design, and so I did a lot of work for for TV shows and commercials and and some film, um, and did work for several different Olympics, um, starting with the uh, 1988 Olympics in Seoul, Korea. Um, oh, interesting. And so it was kind of a diverse, um, well, and then I should probably add, and then I, (laughs) at one point I went to, and I lived in France for two years and ended up working for a company that I had done work for in Los Angeles called Pittard Sullivan Design, had just opened an office there and ended up doing work for them and other freelance. Um, And that was a, a wonderful experience. I recommend living in Paris to everyone. Uh, the I'll interesting right part. The interesting part for you, though, is that, is that when I came back, the industry had completely changed, and so we'd gone from these, you know, the Quantel Paintbox was a was a million dollar platform. Um, when I got back, everything had devolved to desktop, and so I was, um, I, you know, I, it took me a while to sort of regroup and um, and you know regain my momentum. Uh, and, and I think that that phenomenon is, you know, is occurring at a a faster and faster rate. It's the, um, uh, you know, it's sort of a, it's the, it's the exponential. Well, yeah, it's the the equivalent of Moore's law, uh, except it's, you know, it seems to happen, um, more and more quickly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't did did that answer your question at all in uh, any it, way, shape, or form? It answered it answered a number of questions, um, but uh, but but yeah. Uh, so so then how how did that transition go down? What what brought you from all this you know freelance graphic design and uh, and more or less, I guess, animation work for lack of a better word. Like what, where did that transition into gaming come in and, and how did it, cause I know you aren't really necessarily an avid uh, uh, video game player yourself. So how exactly did you sort of fall into that Avenue? Um, really it was through friends. Um, I, um, it, I, after getting back from France and um, I'm, I, I may be messing up the timeline, but uh, the, the the economy was was bad. I was really having trouble finding work, finding freelance. I really felt um, outcompeted because I didn't feel like I was up to speed on on, on doing desktop work. And finally, a friend of my brother's, my younger brother John, who's nine years younger, is a is a programmer. Or was was well, he still is a programmer. He still does that. Um, and uh, so I, that's where I met um, Tim Morton, and he was kind enough to let me come in um, and learn, um, uh, basically learn to use a, a, a desktop, and from there to learn to use um, uh, 3D Studio Max. Um, and uh, really, it was through his good graces that I that I got into the game industry. And so he, this was Savage Entertainment. Uh, he had started that along with two friends. He was the CEO, um, a, a real sweetheart of a guy um, and, uh, and very smart and capable. Uh, and it was, but it was a boutique facility. It was, it was a small game company. And um, uh, eventually he hired me and that's, that's how I got into gaming. And and yes, Paxton, I fully admit I was I was not particularly a gamer, and I felt really I felt like a fraud the whole time. <laughs> um, and you know, I always I felt like the proverbial jack of all trades, master of none. I, um, but that was it, it, that's because it, when you're working for a boutique facility, um, I'm sure not all boutique facilities are like this, but um, at least at Savage, when you're working with a smaller group of people you often have the opportunity to wear more than one hat. And this was a, this was really a lot of fun. So I was, you know, ended up doing not only 3d modeling, but also, um, you know, uh, particle, uh, uh, particle work and, um, and, uh, but much of other stuff. And we, we ended up doing not only gaming, but, uh, we also, we also did started doing uh, work with EA onsite, um, helping them with several of their franchises and uh, even did work for DARPA, the, you know, defense advanced research uh, project. Um, We created a a battle simulation, uh, which was actually used uh, in Iraq, if I'm not mistaken. Um, You know, basically a multiplayer war game that was used for actual um, combat training. Yeah, there is a lot of that crossover in the industry, isn't there? A lot of that, uh, yeah. there's a lot of combat simulation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, one thing Justin and I were talking about before the interview, too, that was really interesting to us is because uh, I know a lot of what Savage sort of uh, specialized in was a lot of um, ports and adaptations of, uh, of established uh, IPs um, and franchises. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when you talk about, you know, doing 3D modeling, when you talk about bringing in your um, artistic vision, how... How did that complement and what were your, I suppose your, um, I guess a better way to phrase it, where was, where did your freedom lie and what was restrictive about lending your artistic ability to, mm. uh, to pre-established IPs? I felt like my restrictions were always technical. I always felt like I was, I was trying to get up to speed with the technology, trying to understand um, you know, how do you do texture mapping? How do you work with a particular game engine? Um, you know, what, um, because to, to me, and I never considered myself a, a technically adept person. So at the time, I, um, 
yeah, I always felt like I was kind of successfully faking it. Um, Aren't we all? But, uh, um, you know, I guess I, I did well enough that I remained gainfully employed um, in the industry. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you want me to, to move on from Savage um, or if you have more questions about how that worked. But it was a great experience. I really enjoyed working at Savage and, and there were some uh, really terrific people there. I mean, I'm just kind of interested personally. I know this is like maybe getting away from the sort of like the, the, the video games angle that we kind of like very mm -hmm. subconsciously come into like almost everything we do with, except mm -hmm. when we're talking about movies or other dork stuff. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I, I am kind of interested in just sort of like in terms of like the labor, like, you know, like you, you're describing the, like the sort of like the Moore's law aspect of, you mm. know, like things constantly changing to me, that, that kind of it parallels to a certain extent with the way you're talking about needing to wear or getting to wear, I guess, depending on how you want to frame it, like several hats as well, you know, like you're like constantly like moving between technologies. And you mentioned at the top of the show, you're back to freelancing now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess yeah. like how, I don't know, like, how are you, this is again, kind of a broad question, but I guess like, how are you navigating that these days? Like, what's like, I don't know, like, do you, uh, yeah, just how do you, how do you navigate that? Just kind of like as someone who works? Well, you know, I'm 68 now, so the, the pressure is kind of off. I mean, I, I'm, I'm effectively semi-retired and I can, I can work when and if I want, mm. which is a good thing and a bad thing. Um, uh, but I think the, the ethic of work changed. I remember when I was much younger, the idea of learning a new platform or learning new software just seemed so formidable to me. Uh, you know, I thought, oh my God, now I've got to learn this. You know, I've just, I've, I've, I've gotten, I've become really good on the, on the Quantel paint box. Now I have to learn how to, how to use a Harry, the Quantel Harry. And these are machines that you're probably not familiar with. Uh, they're, they're, they're dinosaurs that uh, were let out to pasture long ago, but uh, and now I, and I think the ethic has changed. Well, the ethic and the technology to a certain extent, uh, because UX wasn't a thing at the time, and so learning new software really could be formidable because software was generally designed by engineers, and engineers often make awful designers. I'm, you know, they're great at what they do, but when they're tasked to, to act to design the interface to what they do, it can really fall flat. And so I think that's changed. Uh, UX has really, and it continues to really come into its own now. And so you, companies understand the, the need to have capable UX, UI designers on board, um, making their interfaces um, easier to use. So that the technical ethic has changed mm. and i think the and i think the the personal ethic has changed i think people are much more accustomed now to learning um you know multiple software packages it's just you know that's it's what you do right. um it's not considered uh, you know particularly challenging yeah. so i think those those two things have you know have complement one another now that's an interesting. It's an interesting thing. We do have to wrap this up here pretty soon, but I do yeah. think it's. I do think it's very interesting to to consider that, like, uh, for better, uh, yeah, for better and for worse, sort of as you said, like there is this need now. You can't really have your one thing. You can't, uh, at least in as many creative capacities as it used to be. You can't necessarily mm -hmm. be the. Uh, you know, I make 3D models. That's my whole thing. That's all I do. You need to have you know, that that sort of left and right brain prowess to sort of have at least some sort of symbiosis in order to uh, jive well in a in a team. Um, which I mean, I guess it's great for for creating for um, bringing more uh, uh, well versed multifaceted artists and designers into the fray but it also puts a lot more on potential artists and designers plate as well um but yeah i mean it's it sounds as though you have managed to uh uh skirt that skirt that line quite nicely despite the ever mounting 
uh, uh, pile of responsibilities and uh, things that need learning you faced. Um, so that's encouraging. Uh, well, I, that is going to be about all the time we have for today. Uh, but Peter, thank you so much for joining us and actually bringing in a real insight and perspective that goes beyond two people uh, completely detached from the industry, sort of spouting their own speculations about things. Um, it was, it was really, we appreciate having your voice here with us today. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks for having me on. It was, yeah, it was great gabbing. Uh, it's always, always great gabbing. Um, all right. That's going to do it for us this week. Uh, you know, as usual, uh, stay safe and stay healthy folks and, uh, say goodbye, Peter. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Deep Is everyone ready? Goodbye, Peter. There we go. Yay. Yeah. Take care, everyone. <laughs>